If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You want to know what the best email marketing service is for your small business? Well, I've got the team for you. Emailtooltester.com is the place to find reviews and tutorials of newsletter services like ActiveCampaign, MailChimp, GetResponse, and many more. Download their free comparison spreadsheet that will help you find the best email marketing service among many providers. Just Google Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. Again, just Google it. Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today is Marketing Today's 200th episode. When I started this project nearly five years ago, I didn't think I had any idea that I would get this far and that I would enjoy it as much as I have. I've been really fortunate to have the opportunity to interview so many amazing marketers and smart people who really care about honing the craft and science of marketing, and more importantly, leadership of marketing. For today's episode, I thought we could pull out some highlights from some of the last 199 episodes. As I went back in time, It was really hard to pick just a handful that we have time for today, or you'd be listening to probably over 100 hours of audio because it's really hard to pick. 
I thought we could go back to the very beginning, though, and my first 15 episodes were crafted to look behind the scenes of Effie award-winning campaigns. They actually started out as a video, which we later turned into an audio podcast. The videos are actually still available on YouTube channel for the show if you're interested in seeing me and the guest uh, speak as we uh, versus just listen to us. My very first interview was with Colleen Sellers, who at the time was at Johnson & Johnson running the allergy portfolio, and specifically, we talk about Zyrtec's Muddle No More campaign. Here she is defining marketing effectiveness. I think the other way you can think about it is how do your consumers relate to you? Do you feel like they are, do consumers feel like you're talking more authentically to them, that they're more part part of their, the conversation with you? Do they feel like you get them? And so one of our key metrics actually on the Zyrtec brand is trying to see improvement in the brand, being the brand that gets them um, versus just a brand that they buy. From this rather succinct focus on sales and perceptions, I also remember calling for her inspiration that starts with the customer insight that drives strategy. I think a couple of things inspire me and um, both actually are people. So my consumers really inspire me. I love getting to understand them more and really diving deep into the consumer insights. I think that, um, you know, in fact, we make people's lives better every day because allergies can be a real pain in the neck. And so it's really wonderful to be able to improve someone's life and get that feedback. But it was her poise and authentic reflections on being the only female we interviewed that day and a working mom that still sticks with me today. One of the things we were surprised by Mm -hmm. is that you were our first female of the day and actually the only female interview today. What is that? What do you think that says? Or or is it, does it say anything at all? So, you know, I don't know. It's interesting because where I work at Johnson and Johnson, there are a lot of female leaders Mm -hmm. and, um, we're actually over 50% female in my group. So it is a little surprising to me. I was, I was surprised and my agency teams have a lot of women on them. So, um, it was kind of surprising, not in a good way. Right. Right. Um, and so I don't know if it is, you know, kind of which of the winners got, you know, got chosen. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I think it's, I think it's a sign that we need to make sure that we're continuing to, um, support our women leaders. Mm -hmm. And also, I think, make sure that we're telling people that um, this is part of success is coming to be part of these interviews and really making sure that you're championing your brands across, you know, all the different channels. So not just when you're creating the TV commercials and the digital programs, but really all of it. I don't know. It's kind of... um, It was disturbing, It's disturbing. (laughs) I, I think it is a little disturbing. And I think, you know... Part of me is like, well, maybe they were, you know, juggling a lot of things. Yeah. It's June. It's the end of school. <laughs> I, I know I was at a school of function this morning in Philadelphia and hopped on the train to be here. So yeah. sometimes the juggling just right. makes it hard to do right. these things. But it is a little. Do you have any suggestions or tips for people that may be in your shoes in the future? Yeah. You know, I I think for women especially, it's, it is hard to... Um, you have a lot of times in your life, especially when you have children. So you, you know, you take a little while off and you come back and it becomes a time of adjustment. And as we all know, change is hard and it's hard to adjust back and forth. And I think naturally, because women do leave to have maternity leaves, coming back to that is another adjustment phase. And I think giving yourself time to adjust and learning to do things differently and knowing it's okay to do things differently than you did before. I don't know if we talk about that enough as like, as a culture, I don't know if we talk up to our 
younger leaders who are just coming and having babies that it's okay that it's difficult and that we need to support each other in it. I actually, a couple of weeks ago, one of the girls who doesn't work directly for me, but she works with me, she came to me and she said, oh my God, how do I do this? And I was like, well, first of all, you start by not making sure everything has to be perfect. And, you know, I think for a lot of us who have been driven to success, perfection and being a perfectionist is part of that drive or part of that reason you're successful. And once you're a working mom or a working dad, right, this goes right. for dads too, not everything can be perfect anymore. <laughs> and <laughs> so you have to, right? right, you have to pick what's going to be perfect. And then you have to decide, well, this doesn't actually need to be perfect. This just needs to be good enough. And learning that, that's a process. And the more senior you get and the more experience you get, the better you get at making the choices. Sometimes you don't make the right choice, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's really important. Um, you know, I know one of your questions is about what would you change? Mm -hmm. And so we've had a lot of, we've done a lot of digital work on Zyrtec and on Benadryl. And one of the big learnings there is that nothing is perfect, mm -hmm. right? And you can think an idea is really good and put it into the digital or social space. And it actually doesn't do very well. And the ideas that do really well, you're sometimes really surprised by. That was like the one-off post or the one-off tweet. And you're like, oh, this had a lot of, this had a lot of legs. This is great. And so learning like learning to put stuff out there and get a response and then learn from that response, I think is part of being a good marketer and, you know, in the current environment that we live in. I think that goes for our personal lives too and our work lives. So I think learning to not be perfect in everything you do, but put yourself out there. Right. So come for the interview um, <laughs> is, is a really important thing. I think that's a great advice. Great yeah, advice. Thank you. Another interview in that same group was with an amazing dude, Tom Bick. It was episode four, and Tom at the time was with Oscar Mayer and Kraft and won an Effie for the campaign, Say It With Bacon. And you really can't go wrong talking about bacon. But unfortunately, in the last couple of years, Tom passed away way, way too early. Tom's interview was packed with all the goodness that you might expect, but his character and personality just leapt out, and I really miss him. His mastery of art and science of marketing and ability to swing effortlessly from one to the other. The pendulum swings, uh, it doesn't have to be an either or decision. Um, to build a brand, you need to look at the short term and you need to drive sales, but you need to look at long term and you need to look at the equity in the brand as well. Now, how do you do that? Um, I think it is about enduring, engaging storytelling it is about big ideas, not little ideas. It's about um, finding a platform that connects you to the, the human condition. What is your real brand purpose long term? So that takes a little soul searching um, and, and a clear understanding of what business you're really in. It's, it, you know, it's not just about a product feature because product features come and go and, and you'll have competitive advantages uh, in the short term and you'll lose them in the long term. But great brands endure because they understand their their rightful place in your home or my home and once you identify that and then you engage with that idea in a compelling manner in elegant storytelling and not selfish advertising i think you have a, at least a chance to, to build an enduring brand how 
how important do you think research is, you know, as you're trying to understand these equities or. Yeah, this is a controversial area. <laughs> I, and, and I say this because I have a love and hate relationship <laughs> and anybody who knows me knows this uh, at Kraft Foods and Oscar Mayer. And, and um, you know, my background is in research. I uh, came out of the research field. I spent five years, six years in, in uh, as a consumer researcher at uh, Miller Brewing Company. And then I was a, a planner at an agency for a while. So I have great respect for research. Uh, if done properly. The problem with research is usually that it's not the tools. Every tool has a limitation, Mm -hmm. but you need to understand the limitations of your tools and research where it breaks down is the interpretation. Mm -hmm. So you have a great researcher, they know how to interpret and connect the information, tell the broader story and not get lost in the one study or the other study. When research goes awry, it's used as a weapon to kill great ideas, you know, and, and that's the fear. Uh, we all can afford and we can all, we're all great companies. We can all go out and buy research. And, and if we're all using the same playbook, so to speak, right, then what's the competitive advantage? We all sort of regress towards the mean. And that's the problem. You need to know when, when to read the tea leaves, which is, I think, what research gives you. It sort of gives you sort of clues. How do you connect those clues and how do you use it appropriately? Mm-hmm. But don't let it dictate and drive what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Use it appropriately as a tool to guide. Do you think there's any new methods or, or yeah. takes on research? Yeah. What I'm most intrigued with right now is, you know, one of my, my concerns has always been the cognitive bias that you have with uh, self-report or survey data and mm-hmm. things of that nature. Um, you know, uh, questions like how persuasive was this advertising is to me a, a silly question. Um, I don't think people know why they're persuaded. So what I love is really the the some of the research companies that are sort of tapping into the latest neural science and sort of trying to figure out how you bridge that and sort of how do you get at what's really going on subconsciously within consumers. So um, there are companies out there that do that. And I think that's the next sort of area to really sort of plumb for, for real insight. What do you see as the most important marketing trend or opportunity that's out there today? Well, I'll tell you which one concerns me the most. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's an opportunity too, but it's, yeah. it's, it's whoever figures out and bridges, you know, there, there are two sort of schools out there right now. You'll hear a lot about big data and a lot of pundits of big data. And it is, you know, the, every article or every other article out there is about big data, mining big data. And big data is important. But there's also big brand. And how do you build, you know, the big brand ideas and big M sort of marketing or big idea marketing? Nobody's really talking about how those two intersect. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think about it, they're kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum. Big data is talking about how do you drive down to a one-to-one relationship and find what's most important to the individual. Um, but it could come at the expense of what's the brand idea. Big brand buildings about what's the universal truth and the human sort of condition and what's what's the solve that we have that is a shortcut right that we can mm-hmm. just sort of find the common ground um, both culturally and from a consumer insight. So what are these big unifying ideas? You know, Coke is joy and and that's a big idea versus yeah. a, a small idea. My fear is that big data could drive us down to almost sort of a very sophisticated direct response model, yeah. um, and we could lose sight of you know the dream or the 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 bigger sort of uh power behind what marketing really can be in building brands so whoever you know you have to do both but we have to find the intersection of the two mm-hmm. um and and i don't find a lot of people talking about that i think it's a convenient sort of um well there's a convenient lack of discussion around this area of like well, what is marketing 
you know, is it direct response or is it big brand building? Finally, it was Tom's ability to net out a point, which he did time and time again in his interview with these short quips like average is failure. Tom was never average. And I worry that our marketing IQ as an industry has dipped below average with his passing. What are the things that you need to be cognizant of these days? I think as a, as a good partner, as a creative partner, you have to set the environment for your partners, for the agency to go out and do what they do best, which is swing for the fences, um, address the brief, but give them enough uh, latitude to really do what they do well, which is bring creative firepower. You know, too many people, I think, operate out of the sense of fear. Um, ideas get marginalized quickly. Uh, we look at the industry and we try to follow the industry versus saying, you know, I'm, I'm a brand that stands uh, head and shoulder, maybe above the industry. I'm not going to follow the conventions. And so be brave. Swing for the fences. It's just advertising. It's not like you're going to don't kill the brand. Don't be stupid. But, you know, advertising is meant to be consumed. Um, you need to engage. If it's not in the top 10%, it's probably not worth talking about anything else. It's not worth talking about the ROIs and the studies and because average is failure, in my opinion. So that, you know, swing for the fences, be brilliant, be brave. My first academic on the show was my friend Kim Whitler, and that's really isn't a fair description as she was a CMO before leaving the corporate world to study under professor at Indiana and attain her PhD. Kim is now a professor in her own right at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business and doing some amazing research on marketing's impact on growth. Also, you can experience how far my remote interview sound has improved from this point. Oh, it was pretty bad. Here's Kim on the impact of marketing experience at the board level of companies. I'm curious if we take the organization and start at the board level, what have you learned about marketing experience on board? How does that impact a company? One of the questions we sought to answer with our research is what is the unique contribution of marketers in the firm? So when you look at all of the different ways in which academics and marketers measure themselves, you know, for example, I was measured at one point, I was an officer in a firm, C-level, and I was measured on ROIC, return on invested capital. And at the point, I had no idea how our, my department's unique contribution actually impacted ROIC, more so than other functions. And yet I was measured on it. I was also measured on EPS, as was everybody else on the top management team. And yet I could not actually explain to you how our unique contribution, by the way, neither could IT or finance. Nobody on the top management team could basically give you an R-squared explanation on their function's unique contribution to EPS. But we were all held accountable for it because the CEO was held accountable for it. So part of our question was, if you look at boards, which today, postdocs, they've been disproportionately populated by finance, accounting, legal-type folks folks who are very focused inwardly on the firm, on the functioning of the firm, and frankly, more on monitoring roles. The question is, what could a marketer, if added to a board like that, contribute above and beyond all the other functions? Well, they all affect efficiency. They all affect profitability. But the unique contribution, we argue, of these 110 different metrics that are in the marketing metrics book the unique contribution that marketers we believe will contribute at the board level is an understanding of how to generate demand 
given external conditions, internal competencies, the consumer, et cetera. That is their unique contribution. They do a better job of being outwardly focused, externally focused, market-oriented, and bringing insight about the consumer, the competition, and the market into the firm in a way to help shift strategy and resources to impact revenue growth. And in fact, that's what we show. So there's a paper that's been published in MSI where we demonstrate that marketers on the board help increase uh, firm performance, specifically revenue growth. Historically, marketers underrepresented on boards. Do you see that changing? You know, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of great historical data. I don't have data year by year. There are some reports that I've been able to pull up, and although they don't measure things the same way year after year, we get some anecdotal evidence that, in fact, marketers have been declining as a percentage of the board. And there's a couple of factors that have affected this. If you go back to the 90s, not every board had a finance, a CFO on right? Somebody who had significant financial experience on the board. However, post stocks, every board must now have it because of regulation. And so you went from not every board having a finance director and the average board size being around 13 back in the 80s and early 90s. And now the average board size is somewhere between nine and 10. So at the same time that you've added accounting and finance folks, you've also reduced the size of the board. And so what we believe is happening is that some of the ancillary roles that were filled by people like a CHRO or a CMO or a professor or somebody from the government, so there are representatives who sit on boards, some of these kind of more nominally represented experiences have been the first, we believe, to go by the wayside as you bring on more and more and more finance, accounting, expertise onto the boards to be able to deal with all of the regulation. And so our argument, if you think about it, imagine if we took the top management team and we said, no longer is every function going to be represented. We're going to skew the representation to finance and accounting and legal. How would that affect the management of the firm? And so we actually believe, and we're not saying that, you know, marketing is more important than finance. In fact, we actually believe that they're nice. It's kind of a nice teeter-totter, a nice counterbalance. Now, of course, we didn't stop here, and I'd encourage you to check out interviews with Phil Kotler. It's episode 61, the father of marketing management, as he describes what hasn't changed in the last 50 years. I'm curious, after, after that many years, what's still true about marketing today? Yeah, the foundational idea is that marketing is a customer-oriented discipline. Its purpose is to help create goods and services that serve and satisfy the needs and wants of specific groups, market segments, and so on. So that hasn't changed. Here he is again talking about what has changed in the last 50 years. What has changed is a number of things. Over uh, newer editions, I brought in more on the social impact of marketing because Every marketing decision also has uh, some possible impact on our resources, on our communities, on our planet. And I call that maybe sort of the corporate social responsibility aspect of making decisions that... 
If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Make good products and services, but in a way that is not wasteful, is not harmful to communities, and so on. So that will appear in subsequent editions. The latest, then the next big idea was branding. When I wrote Marketing Management First Edition, I I gave a couple of pages to branding because it was just the the simple idea of naming a brand and making it work well. But branding has become so important uh, that companies see themselves as basically building and managing brands and brands that can start with an original product and, and the name of the brand can then help launch other products that are not too dissimilar from the original product. So I invited my co-author, Kevin Keller, to join me in the 11th edition, I believe, approximately. And we've been working together on the Kotler Keller book. And so branding was added. And then Kevin and I both agreed about three editions ago that the digital revolution is not only real, but it's going to just turn marketing around. Marketing traditionally depends um, so much on the 30-second commercial, and that won't disappear. But really, it's such a mass statement, such a brief statement for a market. And most people have internet connections, and they have mobile phones, and they can learn so much more than is found in a 30-second commercial that we have to teach the next generation of marketers how to use social media, the internet, to reach not only send messages to different people, but maybe very specific messages to very specific people. Because with big data now and market analytics, we can actually customize or personalize our messages to come at the right time, at the right place, to the right person. So marketing has been changing in that way, and the 15th edition captures that. Now, if you listen to Phil, you've got to go listen to Kevin Lane Keller, episode 62, who together, the two have built early foundations for marketing and brand management practices and thinking, and much of their thinking is still taught in schools today. Here is Kevin addressing purpose in brand along with a few other topics. Curious to kind of get your point of view on how does purpose play a role in building brands today and what are there, what are the benefits of it? I think the thing with purpose is there is, I think consumers do care more about products than just what they deliver to them you know, directly in some sense, the particular benefits that they accrue from that consuming or purchase that person consuming. 
a product or service. But, and I think that's crucial. I think people do care. I think that's one of the major themes that is in the, the book uh, with Phil Kotler, the marketing management textbook. We talk a lot about the corporate social responsibility and the community and the environment and just people care sort of what the brand is doing about that. You know, that said, I think it's also really important that people care a lot about the value that they're getting and all the richness of what that construct or that concept means in terms of, you know, psychological value as well as more functional value. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of components to that. And I think purpose really works best when it's really tightly linked to what the particular value creation is associated with or brand promise associated with the a brand. And so making sure that those two are really closely aligned, I think is, is important. I think that's, and that's true with a, you know, another theme that, I mean, there are lots of themes that you know, go on in branding and marketing. I think sort of the emotional side is one that a lot of people talk about and it's, it's importance, the notion of storytelling and narratives, all those are very, very useful ways of thinking about how to take that brand, your brand promise in the value you create and, and the richness you're trying to, to kind of paint that picture in the minds of consumers. But I, I really think it's crucial that they're all sort of linked and integrated and aligned. I think sometimes the mistakes are when they're almost, you know, they're added on and they're not truly linked. They're, it's just sort of slapped on or it's, it's just something that is disconnected somewhat. And I think that's the strongest brands are so cohesive and the parts, all these different things we're talking about, these different notions come together so well. And that's why they're so strong is that because of that alignment that occurs so that the fundamental value that's being created, the actual more product functions, if you will, and the more rational value ladders up and links to a more emotional payoff, which is in itself, all of that kind of is consistent with the purpose that you know the higher order value that's created that, that goes more to the community as a whole or to society or the environment or whatever that is. And that's I think those brands are the ones that have that consistency and cohesiveness and clarity in the minds of consumers. So to me, that said again, back one last thing on purpose, because you asked about the benefits. If you know, I, I am a big believer in that and the importance of having causes and that that's something that I think should be part of the brand promise and it's part of kind of giving back as a brand and if you do it well there's so many benefits and i think sometimes people don't always appreciate the maybe the richness of that because it certainly helps with awareness but it creates a certain personality and imagery for your brand it can evoke emotions it can really elicit engagement and that's all externally it has great internal value with employees and how they can rally behind the the cause and when you think of all those things and how, if it's done properly, and again, just like any kind of sponsorship or cause or any of these kind of programs, you know, the execution and the kind of strategic intent that goes with that is, is so important. But you know, if, if done right, then you're going to get bottom line benefits because of how much it can help a brand in these different ways. So that's the way I tend to think about purpose is making sure that I appreciate you know, how to do it right what the benefits are I get from it, and then most importantly, how it fits into this bigger picture of my brand strategy. So after you talk to Phil and you talk to Kevin, 
you have to go and search for who's the new people on the block, who are the new kids on the block. And we talked to people like Byron Sharp, episode 63, from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. And we talked to him and specifically how and why he has shaken the foundation of marketing with his book, How Brands Grow. Here's Byron. In 2010, you published How Brands Grow and What Marketers Don't Know. So seven years on, this book is, I think, taking on a life of its own. It, it seems to get more popular in the circles that I run in every month. And that's kind of an amazing feat for something that came out seven years ago. But what drove the creation of that book? Okay. Yeah, it is. I mean, yes, it, it, uh, every year it sells more. I mean, I think it's still early days. Yes, it, 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 it does. It has taken on a life of its own. And quite literally, because it was never designed to sell to... You know, mass markets. Now, the book came about because the Ehrenberg Bass Institute has advisory board boards in the US and Europe and Australia. And board members asked for us to write a book on the early fundamental findings. The intention was that so they wanted a book that you know you could you could give to chief marketing officer could give to their CEO, CFO, and others and say, you know, you've heard we're making changes in marketing again but this time there's some science behind them it's not just the latest fashion and you know so this would as we've seen it does i mean it enhances the status of marketing an organization when you can do that when you can start the sort of evidence-based marketing journey so the book needed to be it needed to be hardcover it needed to have a prestigious publisher and we got oxford university press and they're not too shabby so, you know, that's why, that's what fitted the bill. And that's what it was for, you know. And, and, but as I say, then it started to sell and Ad Age, you know, it got voted as a book of the year or something. And, uh, you know, it's been covered in Financial Times and, and, and others. So, yeah, it, it has taken a, on a life of its own. It, it, was, it was the subtitle of it, you know, What Marketers Don't Know. It was always designed to, you know, that was a little a bit provocative, you know, deliberately provocative. But it was, it was designed to, I suppose, catch attention. You know, it was, it was never put out and, you know, it never appeared on uh, bookshelves and things. Oxford University Press or an academic publisher, they don't have a sales force. I've also spent time with another new kid on the block, so to speak, J.B. Steenkamp from the Keenan Flagler Business School at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He's been on twice, episode 40 and episode 137, on global brand management, as well as the rise of private labels and hard discounters like Aldi and Lidl. JB describes the experience with Paul Pullman, the former CEO of Unilever, when he was at P&G, that ultimately inspired and led to JB's study of private labels and the influence they have on big manufacturers. For a lot of my work, the experience that made a big difference was that I was doing one-time consulting work for Procter & Gamble in Europe. And after I presented things about innovation, etc., I had an, um, just one-on-one -on -one with the president of Procter & Gamble Europe, um, Paul Pullman, and he told me, so just he and I, uh, he, he was, he's also a Dutchman, so, you know, we just spoke Dutch with each other. And he told me that innovation was important, but that he was really afraid of one competitor. And he asked me which one it was. I said, you know, is it Nestle? Is it Unilever? Henko? He said, no, it's Aldi. 
He wow. was really afraid wow. of Aldi. And when A.G. Lafley, the CEO of Procter Gamble, came to Switzerland, where the European headquarters were, Paul Pullman took him to an Aldi store. Now, Paul Pullman told me that, uh, you know, A.G. was a, a little surprised because, you know, that's not exactly what he would really think about. Pullman explained to me, he said, you know, the real problem here is they own the shelves and they sell hardly any of our brands. I said, that is, a, that is an existential threat, he said, not a normal threat. He said, if we cannot win from Unilever or Nestle, we are clearly doing something wrong. But winning against them is a completely different game. Well, Paul Pullman went on to become the CFO of Nestle, and he is currently he will resign uh, shortly, is the CEO of Unilever. But that conversation around the year 2000, when he said that that got me onto this interest in private labels and in, in hard discounters. Now, you can't just stop with academics. We've also talked to countless marketers, but I've also added some other voices to the mix. And I've added the hilarious Mark Ritson in episode 43, as well as episode 159. And his passion for educating marketers and honored by his announcement and endorsement he made to me. It's been way, way too long. I feel like it's been like two years since I've had you on this show. Pretty much. And I think you've kind of got famous on your podcast certainly has <laughs> since we since we first did it. You know, I mean, I've I should probably tell you because you don't know the backstory about what we're doing here for once. Can I can I turn the table? Yeah. You? Tell me. So tell me, tell so me. I remember. So if you go back about four months, I did this mini MBA in marketing, which is a it's an online uh, version of the MBA courses I've taught around the world, and we do it online, and we get like two thousand people doing it all over the world. It's 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 been a great success. But one of the things I wanted to do this year was to have a um, a podcast for each of the 12 classes because, you know, my, my students are tuning in all, all online. And so I looked around and I sort of checked out all the different marketing podcasts and I really wanted to use the same one and have one kind of interview for each of the 12 episodes. And I found this, this one that I really liked, which was yours, and I was like, you know... <laughs> I think that's pretty good, pretty good. And then I thought, Jesus, you know, I think I was on this. And I could, yes. I didn't even remember. <laughs> I, I'll be honest with you. I'm like, fuck, I think I was on this. So I looked myself up. I'm like, oh, yeah, I was on this, right? I didn't really, <laughs> but mine was like not very good. But some of them are very good. And then, so I I got 11 out of 12. So I found 11 great podcasts. And, and truly, is that I'll, I'll probably give you some grief in a minute. So let me butter you up yeah. first. I, it really was the best <laughs> podcast in the world on marketing, hands down. You know, in terms of wow. quality of people, the way you run it, the topics you pick, it, it, it was it was truly great, Alan. Truly great. And 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 so I, I thought, God, that's the one for me. And then the reason we're here today is there was one topic <laughs> that was missing, which was diagnosis and doing research. And, right. and it's a very interesting point that even the best podcast in the world, and I've listened to every single episode of yours now to find the, the 11, even the best podcast in the world on marketing, man, it's light on, on research and diagnosis. It's all about tactics. And that's not a criticism of you. I think it's a function of the way marketing has gone. Now, it took a while for that endorsement to sink in as those that know Mark know he can be very critical in his assessment of marketers and the work that they do. 
I really can't think much more about what a ride this first 200 episodes has been. I've had the pleasure of interviewing loads of interesting CMOs over the years, like Raja Rajmanar at MasterCard, Linda Boff at GE, or even Mark Pritchard at P&G, among so many others that I can't, I don't have time to name. I've also had the honor to be with really smart thinkers and thought leaders like Seth Godin, Bob Hoffman, Mark Barden, Richard Schotten, Weimer Snyders, Michael Platt, and many others. But I'm really thankful for many friendships that have formed from these conversations over the last five years. I'm looking forward to deeper bonds and shared experiences ahead. And lastly, and most importantly, I'm thankful for you. You listen in to each conversation with a curious mind, looking for what you can learn and apply in your own work. I'm even more thankful that you come back again and again to listen. While I've met many listeners, and I do look forward to hearing from listeners, and I've gotten some great suggestions and guest ideas, please feel free to write me on the contact page at marketingtodaypodcast.com. I literally read every message. I don't always have the time to respond to everyone, but know that I am listening and I am reading every single one. So please reach out. I'd love to chat. I want to close out this episode with a little sequence from my interview with Seth Godin, where he talks about and is overtly, frankly, setting a new bar for marketers. And I hope in some way, maybe a small way, that marketing today and the podcast that I've been working on and will continue to work on is trying to help us establish and maintain that new bar for ourselves. So without further ado, here's Seth and I talking about this. It seems like you're maybe overtly, it's the, it shouldn't even say it seems, you're overtly kind of trying to set a new bar for marketing and marketers. Possibly, not to put words in your mouth, a more noble and you know virtuous path. Are you trying to counter something uh, or something you oh, see? Oh, yeah. I'm trying to counter a lot of things. <laughs> you know, I think that people are inherently good. If you talk to people about the change they want in the world, if you talk to them about what they care about, most people want to make things better, not selfishly, but generously. And then they start marketing and they act like a selfish, narcissistic, short-term thinking pig. And they do that because they think they're supposed to. They do that because they think they have no choices. And all the other professions, you don't see accountants who suddenly become bad people because they're accountants. And you don't see production engineers, et cetera, et cetera. Why do marketers race to the bottom? And they race to the bottom because you can find a short-term win by tricking people, by cornering people, by pressuring people. And the thing is, you can't keep it up. And because you can't keep it up, that short-term win is usually followed by a lot of unhappiness. And what I'm trying to outline for people is that you can make things better. And you can make them better by doing this thing I'm calling marketing, which is the act of making change happen. I love that phrase of making change happen and this notion of doing better. I mean, the way you describe you know, the challenge, it, it sounds like we're all addicted to some sort of drug as marketers or prone to being addicted to the short-term drug. Yeah, I mean, capitalism compounds it. So if you imagine it's a race and people see that there's only going to be one winner and someone starts cheating and they get a little bit ahead then someone else says, well, I have no choice but to cheat a little bit more. And so all the cheating keeps compounding until everyone's cheating all the time. And so what happens in marketing is someone shows up, 
makes an insane promise, spams the world, misleads people, and they make a sale. And that's a sale that didn't go to somebody else. So that other person says, whoa, that's not good. I'm going to have to cheat too. And thus the race to the bottom. And the problem with the race to the bottom is that you might win. The second problem is you might come in second, which is even worse. So I'm arguing that you can race to the top. You might not reach everyone. You know, that if you look at what's the number one best-selling piece of music any given week, or what's the best-selling kind of food, it might not be the food or the song you would have been proud to make, right? That Pringles or Doritos or whatever it is aren't necessarily good for the planet, but that's how you get mass by pandering to people. But guess what? There's plenty of room way in the middle of the market for you to make a positive difference without necessarily being number one in market share, but by being number one in impact instead. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now.